Hello and welcome to another episode of Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. I am your host, Zach Wright, an online editor for Volume 105. On this episode, I am joined by Professor Shalev Roisman, an associate professor of law at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. Professor Roisman's scholarship focuses on administrative law, constitutional law, and presidential power. His research and teaching interests include constitutional law, administrative law, national security, international law, and civil procedure. We discuss his forthcoming article titled Presidential Law, which is focused on whether the president must satisfy any procedural duty before acting and what that duty looks like. The article will be published in the Minnesota Law Review this spring. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Professor Roisman, thank you for joining me today. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So to start, I'd like to kind of situate ourselves in the context of your article. Um, So I thought at a high level, could you begin by talking a bit about the difference between what you label presidential law and maybe other forms of executive powers and executive law like administrative law? Sure. Great. So the basic idea behind the paper is to try to Um, identify and examine the procedural law that binds the president, um, the person, him or herself. And uh, what kind of brings me to the topic is that we have, as you kind of note, this really robust, reticulated, uh, taught in law school uh, area of procedural law that applies to executive branch agencies, and that's administrative law. And so administrative law uh, primarily comes from the Administrative Procedure Act, which is a framework statute governing how agencies are going to exercise power passed in 1946. Um, and that provides the kind of uh, standard procedures that agencies have to go through before they exercise power. So if an agency wants to issue a rule, a regulation, if the EPA wants to set you know, the level of pollutant in the atmosphere, um, it has to go through certain procedures, uh, typically notice and comment procedures uh, for informal rulemaking. And so that requires kind of notifying the public, taking their comments, and then responding to them before issuing the final rule. Um, if an agency wants to adjudicate whether an individual has violated a, reg- uh, a law or is entitled to benefits, so there are procedures that bind how they can go about um, conducting that adjudication. Uh, But the president is not subject to that body of procedural law, of administrative law. And the reason for that is that um, in the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act, the the scope of the the, uh, obligations only attaches to agencies, and agencies is defined in a way that does not explicitly include the president. And in 1992, the Supreme Court uh, held that because the APA does not explicitly include the president, then Congress must have sought to exclude the president from administrative laws requirements. So the question is, um, what procedural law, if any, binds the president when the president is exercising power, him or herself, such as through an executive order or proclamation and the like? And the conventional wisdom for that is that there is no real procedural law that binds the president, or at least we haven't identified it. And what this paper is trying to do is argue that, in fact, there is existing law that is procedural in nature that binds how the president exercises power. So when the president does something that is essentially creating a regulation or is adjudicating whether an individual has violated law or is subject to uh, benefits, say, like a Medal of Honor or something, um, Mm -hmm. there are actually procedural obligations that bind how the president can do that. Okay, got it. So just at a high level, kind of the heart of your piece is, is what is that procedure and what does that procedure entail? Is that kind of a, the right way to characterize it? Yeah, exactly. And part of what I'm trying to do is just draw attention to this area and mm-hmm. and, and make it a little bit more uh, a subject of focus, because I think people tend to assume that the president can do what he or she wants. Um And what I'm trying to say is, at least in this area, that's not true. And so that the president even has procedures that bind him or her. And I think most of uh, 
or at least a lot of examination of the president's power tends to focus on substantive elements, meaning like when can the president fire someone? When can the president go to war? Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'm trying to do is say, if we care about the scope of the president's power, if we care about how to constrain the president's power, um, there's a substantive dimension to that. How much power does the president have? When can the president use military force abroad? Um, But there's also a procedural dimension to that. Um, What does the president have to do in order to exercise power? And both of those uh, ways of thinking about it, I think, are useful for trying to fully understand the president's power. You also touch on the alternative um, to this procedural obligation of the president. And I thought as I was reading your piece, it was really helpful for me to keep that potential alternative in mind of the president lacking any sort of procedural obligations and those potential consequences. Could you just, again, at a higher level here, kind of talk about uh, the presence of a procedural obligation versus the lack of that procedural obligation on the president and then any potential consequences? Sure. So um, I think, I guess I'll say a couple of things to kind of uh, set the stage for that. So first, um, we often think that procedures are important and can be as important as substantive law. And so that's why you kind of study civil procedure. Um, that's why we study administrative law, because we think that the scope, the substantive scope of power is important, but so is how you end up um, exercising it. And that can be really constraining. It can be empowering. And in particular, in in the paper, what I argue is that, and I'm not trying in the paper to say, like, um, I have identified all the procedural law that binds the president, <laughs> but I do identify um, some of it. And what I focus on is what I call this a duty to deliberate. And I ground that in a number of sources, the constitutional text of the take care clause in particular, and then primarily um, a large number of Supreme Court cases that have not explicitly said that the president is under a duty to deliberate. But my argument is that they operate on the assumption that the president has to deliberate before exercising power. And that's why they defer to the president often. That's why they find delegations to the president constitutional and so on. And so um, if you and, and what I what I mean by a duty to deliberate is it's not something super onerous. It's just requiring the president to gather relevant information and make a considered judgment informed by that information before exercising power. And so maybe it's helpful to kind of talk about a concrete example. Um, so if you think about the uh, the so-called travel ban, President Trump's uh, travel ban of several Muslim majority countries, the authority that the president was exercising there is an authority that says the president can ban the entry of certain classes of aliens if he determines that their entry would be, quote, detrimental to the interest of the United States. So that's kind of the substantive component of the power. The president can ban um, classes of aliens if he determines their entry would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. So that's a pretty broad um, authority. There's a lot of things that can be, quote, detrimental to the interests of the United States. Um, but the, the, the point I'm trying to make in the paper is that you can kind of critique the breadth of that authority, um, and many people have. Mm-hmm. But you can also critique how the president gets there. And so the difference between deliberating and not is um, kind of the first version of the travel ban reportedly kind of didn't go through any inter- interagency review, was done quickly, was done hastily. It's not clear that they actually consulted people about what the consequences would be. It's not clear that they actually um, based the decision on fact gathering about what entry of these class of aliens would do if permitted and so on. And so the difference between having a duty to deliberate is to say, um, if you're going to exercise this power, you have an obligation to gather information about exercising it. Is the entry of these class of aliens actually going to be detrimental to the interests of the United States? Then you have to consider that information and then you can make the judgment. Um, The difference. So that's if you have procedural obligations, if you have no procedural obligations, the implication is the president could just say that's detrimental to the interests of the United States. I didn't have to think about it. I just don't like the people from this country and therefore I'm going to ban them. And so on the one, one uh, if you have procedural obligations, uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to require the president to actually make a thoughtful decision 
which, you know, after gathering the information, they could still make a, a terrible, bad decision. But at least they've gone through the process of thinking it through, which often I think will have consequences. Whereas mm -hmm. if you don't have that, then they can um, just kind of act on a whim. Gotcha. And you mentioned a, a minute ago in that answer, you talked about kind of where this power comes from. Specifically, you kind of grounded in the take care clause. Um, and, and I want to get into that. But real, real quick, before we get into kind of where this power or excuse me, this procedural obligation arises from, I wanted to to kind of clarify where and how far you think this obligation extends. So you talked about one one example already with the, the so-called travel ban. Um, and you note there's, there's constitutional powers of the president, and then there's also statutory mm -hmm. powers of the president. Could you talk a little bit about if there is any difference in the application of this procedural mm -hmm. obligation to those two things? Yeah, great question. And this is something I struggled with a, a little bit. Um, so I, I try to cabin the scope of the power um, a little bit, yeah. although it's <laughs> rather broad, um, to say that uh, it only applies to exercises of presidential power that are conditioned on the president making some sort of determination. So there are, at least in theory, some powers that are purely discretionary, meaning the president doesn't have to find X before exercising the power. I think some people think that the pardon power is like that, for example, mm -hmm. that there's no sort of condition the president has to find to exercise the power. But most powers given to the president, either by the Constitution or by statute, are conditional. So, uh, for example, a, a power given to the president by the Constitution, or at least many people believe this, is to use military force um, in certain limited circumstances, even when Congress has not authorized it. Mm -hmm. That's a constitutional authority. Um, how do we know when the president has that constitutional authority? There is a body of uh, Office of Legal Counsel opinions within the Justice Department that says there's basically a two-part test. The president has to find that the use of force would be would serve sufficiently important national interests, for example, self-defense of the United States, and that um, the use of force would not be of such scope and duration as a war because only Congress can declare war. So that's, that's just one example, and people can test uh, whether that is the proper test. But the point to see is just that um, for the president to exercise that power, that constitutional authority to use military force, say, in defense of the country, um, he has to find a condition is met that the use of force will serve the self-defense of the country. Um, and then similarly, there's a, 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 a large number of statutes, and I kind of go through them in the first part of the paper, or at least I survey them. I don't list mm -hmm. all of them um, that give the president authority to act uh, based on finding a condition. The travel ban authority is one example. There's a ton of others about, you know, the president can declare an emergency and then, for example, uh, put funding towards a border wall or, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, uh, use the Insurrection Act authority, et cetera. And so the procedural duty I identify is meant to apply to any authority, constitutional or statutory, that requires the president to find a condition. So if the president has to find a condition, the president has to deliberate before doing so. If the president doesn't have to find a condition, if it's just a discretionary power, then it's not clear that the procedural duty I identify um, attaches to that. Okay, perfect. That makes sense to me. So now that now that I kind of feel like I have a good grasp on the the scope and when this obligation might arise, the duty to deliberate. Um, let's let's kind of dive into the weeds now. So where where does this come from? Let's let's start with the the text of the Constitution itself because I know that's a big part of your argument and the take care clause. So could you could you talk a little bit about how the take care clause gives rise to this obligation? Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, people tend to like starting with the text of the Constitution when they're doing <laughs> constitutional interpretation. Yeah. Um, you may have heard of that. Uh, and so uh, the take care clause is in Article 2, um, Section 3. It requires that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And so whenever the president is um, executing a law, this imposes an obligation to do so, quote, faithfully. And so excuse me, uh, textually, uh, if you look up what faithful meant um, in the founding era, uh, and uh, there are uh, uh, 
more complex methods to determine original public meaning. I am not an originalist, so I don't really uh, mm-hmm. do the full work that would be required for that. But there has been a re- recent originalist work in particular by uh, Andrew Kent, Jed Sugarman, and Ethan Lieb, as well as by Evan Burnick that I rely on um, to identify what the public meaning of faithful is. Mm-hmm. And basically it means uh, diligently, carefully, without failure of performance. And so if you think about diligently or carefully, um, if the president has to uh, execute a law, if executing the law requires the president to make a determination, um, say that a use of military force is required for the national defense, Mm -hmm. then to do that diligently or carefully, the president has to kind of engage in some process, right? They have to uh, figure out... uh, they have to be careful about it. They can't just do it on a whim. Um, and so to do that, I think that requires some uh, procedure. You know, Conceivably, the procedure could be like inside the president's head. Um, the president would just have to gather the information and say he already has all the access to the um, classified reports, et cetera. And so then he would just have to kind of recall the relevant information and then carefully think about it before exercising the power. That's what faithful execution requires. Typically, though, the president's not going to just like know all the information that's necessary to find the relevant condition. Um, And so doing it carefully is going to require more than just thinking about it. Um, Otherwise, you can't say it's really careful. So especially if you're talking about like such a serious use of force, like using um, military power or, say, banning people from entering the country, then to do that diligently or carefully, it's going to require just thinking it through. It's going to require gathering relevant information about the use of authority, considering it, and then carefully making the decision. And so the textual basis is grounded, on my account, primarily in what faithful execution requires. It requires you to be diligent, careful, and that's going to require you to engage in some sort of process, at least in most instances. And you even find a... a, a breadth of, of support for where this stuff comes from beyond the Constitution as well. Um, I'd like to turn to the Supreme Court precedent that you talk about. Um, you identify a, a lot of different cases, actually, but I'd want to hone in here on, on Trump v. Hawaii. And mm. um, the, one, of, one of the great joys is of doing this podcast as a podcast host, law student, is I sometimes get to flip the cold call uh, <laughs> routine against a law professor. So, Professor Roisman, could you tell me what was going on in Trump v. Hawaii? I didn't sign up for this. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Trump versus Hawaii is a Supreme Court case um, that uh, challenged the the so-called travel ban that we discussed mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and as we discussed, the, the 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 ban was premised on an authority that gives the president the power to ban the entry of certain class of aliens if their entry would be, quote, detrimental to the interests of the United States. And so the primary um, focus of of most people's kind of evaluation of the lawsuit was on the establishment clause challenge to the to the travel ban. The allegation was that the president um, issued the ban based on animus towards Muslims. So Mm -hmm. that was a violation of the establishment clause. Um, What I try to focus on in this paper is the portion of the opinion not about the establishment clause challenge, but just about whether the president uh, adequately satisfied the the statutory requirement that he find that the entry of certain classes would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. So one part of the challenge is just saying you didn't exercise this authority properly. Mm-hmm. All the authority requires is that the president find that this entry would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. So what is finding that require? So if there's no procedural obligations, I think it just requires the president to write down this, uh, the entry of these aliens would be detrimental to the interest of the United States. I found that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be a very easy opinion. It would be a short part of the mm-hmm. opinion to write. Did the, did the president, as the, 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 um, the court says, quote, the sole prerequisite set forth in section 1182F, which is the relevant authority, is that the president, quote, find, end quote, that the entry of the covered aliens would, quote, be detrimental to the interest of the United States, end quote. That's all the president has to do. 
If there's no procedure that's required, the court could just say the president did so, period. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. That's not what the court does. Instead, they emphasize repeatedly that in fulfilling the requirement, the president ordered DH, the Department of Homeland Security, other agencies to conduct a, quote, comprehensive evaluation of every single country's compliance. They repeatedly say that the president engaged in a worldwide interagency review to determine um, the practices of certain countries in vetting who could travel to the United States. And then, quote, based on that review, the president made the determination. And so, again, the court here does not explicitly say the prerequisite is the president find that the entry would be detrimental to the interest of the United States and the president has to deliberate before doing so. They don't say that. Mm -hmm. But in finding that the president fulfilled the obligation, they rely on the fact that the president did go through this deliberative process. The president did go through this interagency review. The president did. And the court assumes the president relied on that interagency review before making the finding. And so um, even though I think most people uh, see this case, or at least most academics, I think, see this case as, as extremely problematic, and I think it is in, in some respects, um, it also, I think, highlights the idea that the court assumes that even in these re relatively broad determinations, the president can't just make it without gathering information, without considering it. And in fact, the whole reason the court says that the president adequately made the finding is that the president did go through this process of gathering information and in the court's view, considering it. They don't actually say, um, because they don't view it as appropriate for a court to, to uh, inquire into this, they don't um, kind of ask the president, did you consider all this stuff and was your ban um, uh, based on it? They just assume that it was. But kind of mm -hmm. the point of this part of the paper is to say that this assumption uh, suggests that there is this duty to deliberate, even if the court is not going to be the one that robustly polices that duty. And it's not going to be <laughs> uh, a body that that robustly polices that duty. That makes sense. Um, so so with that in mind, how, how do you respond to the counter argument that, you know, Trump v. Hawaii and these other Supreme Court cases you identify merely typified descriptive assumption about what the president is likely to do or ought to do rather than what the president must do to exercise power lawfully? Yeah, so I think that that is going to be the reaction that a lot of people have to this part of the argument. Um, and and it's, I think, a fair reaction. So you read these cases, they all, in my view, typify this assumption. They're all premised on the idea that before the president exercises power, the president deliberates. But they never come out and say the president is obligated to do that before exercising power. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's logically like possible that they are just identifying a condition that is sufficient to um, make the exercise of power lawful, but it's not necessary. Maybe there's some examples where the president doesn't have to um, deliberate before exercising power. The, the court never says that that is not permitted. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just don't read the cases in a way that suggests that this is optional. Um, mm -hmm. And given the breadth of how many cases, so there's non-delegation cases, there's a lot of these deference to the president cases in the national security area, um, even executive privilege. Given how many of these areas where the court clearly just assumes that before the president exercises power, the president deliberates, gathers information, considers it, um, it would seem odd to me that if the court had been informed in that litigation, say in Trump versus Hawaii, um, that oh, actually, no, we don't view the president as having to gather any information or consider it in making this determination. We think that the president can just write the words mm -hmm. without even thinking about it. I don't think the court would have said that's OK. Um, I think the court would have said, wait, if you're required to make a determination that gives you the power to exercise the um, executive branch's authority, you have to actually like make the determination. To make the mm -hmm. determination, you have to think about it. You have to think about would the entry be detrimental to the interest of the United States? You can't just say it would be without thinking about it. And you're not really making the finding. You're just writing the words. And so I I hear the um, counter argument, and I, and I do try to address it in the paper. But it just it, and it's and like I said, it's not um, 
theoretically impossible to read the cases in this way. I mean, this is dicta largely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I think it's not really dicta in the non-delegation context, but for most of the cases, I think it is dicta. And so you can always make the argument that this wasn't necessary for the court to rule, and therefore it's not really a, an obligation. It's just something they think is good. And I just don't see the cases operating that way, given how they're written. I think if they, I think if the president had argued, I can make this finding on a whim, um, uphold my finding, I don't think the court would have said, oh, you're right, you can just make this on a whim. Um, But, you know, I'm happy to hear pushback on that. And I think I will get that and have gotten it in the past. And I I won't be someone to push back on that because I actually think (laughs) I I read the cases similarly. And I, as a a limited uh, law student of interpretative experience, if that's one way to put it, the the shale language and the, the take care clause was something I really focused on as I was reading your piece too. And that seemed to answer that question for me. Um, right. Well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I, I included the text <laughs> of the constitution. Then, <laughs> <laughs> Like you said, it's usually a good place to start um, <laughs> beyond, beyond the text of the constitution and even the Supreme court precedent. You also identify some executive branch interpretations that support this kind of procedural idea. And you actually talked about one earlier about the OLC and kind of the two factor test, I think about, mm-hmm exercising military force. Could you, again, just talk a little briefly about what the OLC has found and maybe the AG as well? Sure. Yeah. So I actually find that the, 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 um, the history of opinions by the attorney general and more recently by the office of legal counsel, which has kind of uh, taken over the attorney general's old role of opining on uh, presidential exercises of power Um, I find that they're even more convincing uh, with respect to this duty to deliberate than the Supreme Court cases, or at least they're even more robust. There's even an even more robust body of these opinions um, that support the duty. And to start, I should just say that, you know, people might think, like, why do we care what the attorney general or the Office of Legal Counsel says about the president's power? That doesn't mean um, that they're right about what's constitutional. And that is true. But uh, the attorney general and the Office of Legal Counsel are typically extremely protective of the president's power and do not like imposing obligations on the president unless they have to. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that these uh, attorney general opinions, these Office of Legal Counsel opinions, all also seem to assume that the president has to deliberate before exercising power suggests that we shouldn't take that assumption lightly because they wouldn't be likely to impose an obligation unless it was actually there. It also... um, I think one push, one response people might have to meet to my identifying this duty would be to say, um, you know, you're just adding procedural requirements on the president. That's going to be cumbersome. We want the president to be able to act quickly. That's the whole reason why we have a single uh, person in the office um, so that they can act with great dispatch, et cetera. And the fact that the that you have these opinions dating back to the early 19th century suggesting that the president was under this duty the whole time, um, I think is is one response to that uh, pushback, which is, I don't think it's all that onerous for the president to just deliberate before exercising power. In fact, I think um, internal executive branch uh, interpretations have long assumed the president had to do that, even going back to the founding era. Okay, so that's kind of a a long uh, prelude to (laughs) the opinions. But yeah, there's just this whole host of um, attorney general opinions that that clearly assume that before the president can um, can exercise power, he has to gather relevant information and consider it. And so, um, even on the p- pardon power, there's an 1853 opinion where the attorney general says that before the president can grant a pardon uh, to someone prior to conviction rather than after quote, there must be satisfactory evidence of some kind as to the guilt of the party. So again, they're assuming like the president is basing um, his, at the time it was a man, determination mm-hmm. on satisfactory evidence, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some idea that the president has to gather information before giving the pardon. And that's in an area where we typically think the president has basically um, full discretion to, to, to grant pardons. And then there's other ones about kind of less... Uh, um, I don't know, uh, prominent constitutional mm-hmm. duties. So they're on a statutory authority. There's an 1881 opinion where basically the president was delegated power to drop from army, the army rules, um, people who had deserted. 
um, the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in there, the, the attorney general says to exercise that power, quote, the president must first necessarily ascertain to his own satisfaction what officers are, quote, now so absent. And then it says that the law placed the ascertainment quote, wholly in the hands of the chief executive who must naturally have been expected to resort to the official records of the War Department as one source. Mm-hmm. So so the law does not require the president to go investigate stuff by its terms. There's no explicit thing that says to drop people from the army rolls, the president has to investigate um, the official records to see whether they were supposed to be a member of the army when, when they left, et cetera. But the attorney general assumes that, yes, you have to go investigate it before you make the finding. This I mean, I think putting it in this way it makes it all sound so obvious, which I think it kind of is. <laughs> I, <laughs> that, like, I would before agree. The, yeah. <laughs> before the president can exercise this power that's going to like remove someone from the military, uh, from the army roles, the president has to like figure out if they should be removed because they deserted. Um, but that's kind of, I think, the basic nature of this duty that I'm identifying, um, which is all I'm saying is that if you have to find a condition, you have to like find the condition by gathering mm-hmm. information and considering it. It's a pretty uh, minimal procedural obligation, but it is a procedural obligation. And so, you know, I could keep going, but there's a ton of these uh, <laughs> attorney general and OLC opinions that have this sort of language where, where the OLC says the, the president has this authority based on this finding um, to make the finding the president uh, naturally would have to engage in an investigation and then um, make the finding after doing that. And so, um, I think there's actually a really robust and I have a whole section of the paper on this kind of laying out a history of these uh, internal executive branch opinions, explaining how these lawyers within the executive branch assume the president has to deliberate before uh, exercising power in these domains. We've covered kind of the scope of when this duty to deliberate applies. We've dug into where this duty to deliberate comes from. Now, I think the question and what you next address in your paper is, is this duty enforceable? And you kind of talk about three different means for enforcing it. So I wanted to take those one at a time here. So first, how could this duty to deliberate be enforced via judicial review? Sure. So um, I, if you take as a given that the president is under a duty to gather relevant information and consider it, um, I think there's a pretty straightforward way for courts to enforce that duty, and that is just to engage in procedural review. Um, they would require the president to explain that, yes, I gathered information. I say I went through interagency review before ex- before executing, uh, excuse me, before uh, issuing an executive order. Um, and that executive order was based on the information I gathered or at least informed by it. So it wouldn't be a very onerous um, form of procedural review, but it's not nothing. It's not just saying you made the finding and therefore we defer. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a pretty that's like a very minimal form of procedural review. It's much lighter, I think, than what we require of administrative agencies. So when an administrative agency issues a regulation, which often is functionally identical to what an executive order would do, um, you know, set a rule that governs future conduct. when an administrative agency does that, it goes, it has to, and it's challenged in court, then the court will identify whether the agency's uh, regulation was, quote, arbitrary and capricious. And that um, is done through a standard framework that a case called State Farm lays out, where you have to make sure that the agency uh, considered the relevant information, drew rational inferences from that information. Um, this requires the agency typically to kind of have a administrative record that it's going to show the court and then it's going to show the court that it um, based its decision on that record and that it considered all the most important factors in making that decision. So that's a much more, um, that's a very standard thing that courts do with respect to agencies, but they just don't do that with respect to the president. And I'm not, as I say in the paper, I don't really see the um, positive law saying that courts um can or must engage in that form of arbitrary and capricious review. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the courts, that that's just has not been required in the past. Um, and Congress has not required it if you assume the APA doesn't apply to the president. And there's important work by Catherine Kovacs recently arguing that that 1992 decision saying that the APA 
excludes the president is just wrong. Um, it should have included the president and there's good reasons for that. But if you take as a given that it doesn't, you know, given the, the current law where the APA does not bind the president, arguments for judicial review um, of the president that would require essentially the same arbitrary and capricious review, I just don't think have a basis in existing binding law. And so the the form of re- review that I suggest um, is is less substantial than that form of review, but it's not nothing. Like I said, it just requires the president to show I have engaged in uh, deliberation. I've done, uh, and I've, I've consulted the experts and I based my decision informed by that consultation. It's kind of similar to what the Trump administration did in Trump versus Hawaii. They didn't mm-hmm. um, have this full record and explain all the factors they considered. They just said, we went through interagency review and um, the decision was based on that. And I think, sorry to go on a little bit, but I just want to address one thing people might be thinking about this um, suggestion, which is like, are you kidding me? Like, that's all you're going to require. Requiring the president to just talk to their agencies doesn't isn't necessarily going to do anything. They're just going to do whatever they were going to do and say, oh, I talked to the agencies and it didn't matter. And, um, you know, there's that I'm sure that's true. There, There will be instances where the president will have known exactly what they want to do. And then the going through the interagency process is kind of a fig leaf and they just go through the motions and then they do what they were going to do anyway. Um, but that's true of agencies too. So there's plenty of examples where agencies know what they're going to do and going through the procedural process um, is doesn't actually change what they were going to do the whole time. But that doesn't mean we don't care about the procedural process. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how the agency gets to the ultimate outcome. It does. And that's why we have administrative law, because we care about that procedural process. And I think that's part of what my motivation is here is to say, I accept fully that the procedures will not going through this procedural obligation will not always change the outcome. Um, even if it does, it might not change the outcome in a meaningful way. But I think these procedures are important and there will be examples where the president's going through this process will change the outcome and going through the interagency process often does change the outcome of the um, of the final product. So I don't think it's a it's maybe not as a robust a form of of judicial review as some people might want, but I don't think it's meaningless. I do think it can it can really affect what the president does in some circumstances. And the the second way to potentially enforce this. I actually think you've talked a decent amount about already, um, but you you talk in your paper about how internal executive enforcement of such a duty to deliberate could work. Could you just kind of review that briefly? Yeah, sure. So um, I think that, you know, I've, I've probably talked too long about what judicial review would look like, but I, I actually think judicial review is not going to be a very robust way of policing the president's requirements here um, because it's just very rare where the president exercises power in a way that, that gives someone standing um, if you mm-hmm. accept the courts uh, or standing or justiciable. So the court has, uh, has found ways to kind of not review presidential exercises of power, either because there isn't a party with standing or they deem it a political question or the like. And so most of the president's power is going to be exercised in a way that's not reviewed by a court. And so I think the most impactful way to to pull, to enforce the duty um, would be for the president to enforce it on him or herself. And there's a couple straightforward ways to do that, I think. So uh, the president has issued this executive order that binds how executive orders are issued. And the president could just amend that and say, yes, I know there's been a norm of of, uh, consulting other agencies before doing this, but I'm going to make that a rule. So if you want to uh, prepare an executive order that I'm going to sign, I require you to engage in interagency uh, deliberation before you do that. So that'd be one way, I think, relatively easily you could have the president enforcing the duty on him or herself. Second, um, and this is redundant, but I think it could be useful. The president could also make clear that if the president has not deliberated before exercising power, then the purported exercise of power is not actually a valid order. People can ignore it. That might seem like, why would you need to do that? Um, But there are examples uh, recently in the Trump administration, uh, fairly prominent examples where the president seemed to try to exercise power on a whim Mm -hmm. uh, without thinking about it through. And and officials in the executive branch just kind of ignored the decision. Um, 
And so there, the first version of the transgender military ban was not complied with by the military. It was issued by like a tweet. Um, yep. And the military was kind of like, uh, I don't think this is like a real, I don't think you've really thought this through. <laughs> this isn't a real order. We're going to require something more formal than this. And there's been reporting about how uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis uh, would frequently just kind of ignore the president's orders if he thought they weren't thought through. Another example is he tried to fire the ambassador to Ukraine, um, mm-hmm. I think over a year before that was actually carried through. So they just kind of ignored it, thinking he was just kind of spouting off a thought as opposed to really thinking through the exercise of power. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I'm talking, I'm not saying that the, the, the officials who ignored the president here were like, oh, the president has a constitutional duty to deliberate. He has not satisfied that theory. <laughs> Professor Royceman's publishing this article that we've read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it wasn't even on SSRN, so how could they know? But, uh, <laughs> so I, I don't think that they were consciously motivated by that, um, or maybe somewhere, I have no idea. But what I what I try to say in the paper is that this the duty to, del- to deliberate ends up kind of justifying their conduct. It makes sense that they wouldn't abide by the president's um, off-the-cuff directives because those directives are unlawful. They were not um, preceded by adequate deliberation. And so the the second proposal I have is just to kind of make that a formal rule. If there's a, a an order that's based on a whim without any deliberation, it's not actually binding. So you should all feel free to ignore it, um, future uh, officials. And so those are kind of the two ways that I propose the executive branch uh, police itself. And I guess I'll say one more thing, even though I, um, it's, we'll stop it from even approaching a short <laughs> answer that you requested, um, which is one response to this, I think, which most people might have, or a lot of people might have is, uh, well, why would the president ever constrain him or herself? Like, what would be the incentive to do that? Don't presidents want more power? Um, why would they tie their hands? And I think that's an important question. So the president will only do this um, if the president has an incentive to do this. I don't think they're going to do it just um, because they think that uh, it's like required by the Constitution or whatever. Um, although maybe if they read the paper, they'll be convinced. I'm not <laughs> I don't predict that. Um, but I think there's obvious kind of incentives for why the president would want to do this. Um, number one, I think President Biden, President elect Biden um, will want to uh, set his administration apart from President Trump. And President Trump has famously made kind of off-the-cuff decisions. And so I think there's an incentive to say, that's not the president I am. I will make sure that all my decisions are based on like facts and evidence. And to do that, I'm going to install these procedures that require gathering facts and evidence before exercising power. And there's other examples where you can think of where presidents will have political incentives to kind of highlight that they are... uh, a president that cares about good process and the like. Mm. um, Second, I think they might just think it makes a better end product. So the reason we have an executive order already that governs how executive orders are issued is because the president Kennedy initially, and then every president since has thought this just makes a better work product. Yes, it constrains my ability to issue executive orders, but it makes them better. And so I think there's a kind of easy way to get to these forms of requirement, self-imposed requirements as well, if you just think the end product will be better. And I think um, in a lot of circumstances, it will be. And in, for interagency review, the president al- already usually does this. And so this just require formalizes an, a, a norm that has already existed. So I don't think it's actually all that onerous. That makes sense. Um, and then the, the third sort of enforcement um, provision or idea, I guess, that you advance in the paper is congressional enforcement. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. And I would imagine it might be a bit different than judicial review and internal executive as far as how that process itself would work. Yeah, great. So I think that this would also be a fairly impactful form of uh, enforcement, more impactful than having the the courts um, be the ones in charge. Uh, And so I think what what Congress could do um, if it had the political will to do so, which I'll bracket and get back to you because that's, I think, <laughs> the big if. Um, if it had the political will to do so, I think they could just pass a framework statute that says before the president exercises, you know, uh, po- powers delegated, uh, per- I think it'd be easier for them to do this for statutory delegations before the president uh, exercises a power given to it by Congress that requires a finding. The president must engage in sufficient deliberation 
including the use of interagency review um, or the like. And so there's kind of complex questions uh, uh, about um, you probably want to set like a significance threshold so that it doesn't you don't require interagency review for the president to order a cheeseburger or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I think that though you can you can fix those problems and there's some calibrating. You always want to calibrate procedural requirements so that they aren't too constraining, so that they don't stop um, the executive from being able to act. And this is a common uh, kind of debate people have in administrative law. Um, but I think the Congress could pass a framework statute that requires deliberation. Some people will think might think that's unconstitutional, but as I discussed in the paper, um, there's a lot of examples of Congress procedurally uh, regulating the president. I don't think most people think that the fact that to create a national monument, the president has to do so by proclamation mm-hmm. is unconstitutional. That's a procedural requirement. And so you just have to go through uh, what's called separation of powers balancing, which Nixon versus general administrative services lays out the test. And that would tell you whether it's constitutional or not. Whether Congress has the will to do this, that's a separate uh, question. I don't expect this to happen unless perhaps there is a, a, a Democratic Senate and and House um, where they would really get the uh, will to try to constrain the president, um, which, you know, could happen. It's not outside the realm of the possible. I think that's a good lead in to my final question for you, which is likely the most difficult as well, at least in my own opinion. And that question is, is the current state of this duty to deliberate that you identify uh, good enough? Yeah. Uh, and I, and I do think that that is uh, probably the hardest question. And um, if the part four of the paper takes on this normative question, I think you can sense some ambivalence in, in how I answer it, but the short answer is no, I don't think it's sufficient at all. Uh, context. So the way I kind of frame it in the paper is to say that um, we have a really robust way of thinking about when agencies can exercise power legitimately. Um, And they have to go through all sorts of procedures. Uh, We kind of discussed some of them. They have to go through notice and comment review before exercising, issuing regulations. Those uh, regulations are then subject to a hard look review where a court will say, did you consider all the right stuff? Did you consider all the important considerations? Did you explain your decision well enough? Um, and so on. And so we have a really kind of uh, broad, robust, smart literature on how do we make sense of the fact that these executive branch agencies are exercising so much power over the population, even though um, they are not democratically elected, even though we might think that Congress is the one that's supposed to be making these sorts of laws and and, and rules. Um, we just don't really have that debate about the president. And so what I'm proposing in this paper is, OK, the president has a procedural obligation to deliberate. The president has to uh, gather relevant information and make a considered judgment. Maybe you agree that the way to enforce that duty is to require the president requires it on him or herself to say, before I exercise power, um, I am going to consult agent expert agencies Mm -hmm. and consider whatever they tell me before I exercise power. Is that enough so that we think that that exercise of power is legitimate? And where I come out is just to say, maybe it is in some circumstances, but I think in a lot, it won't be. And part of this turns on on, um, how much power is delegated to the president by name. And so there's so many things, and this is what part one of the paper uh, kind of lays out as a survey of these authorities. There's so many areas where the president has power that you might not think um, the president has power, like in environmental regulations. government procurement contracts, which make up 10% of gross domestic product. There's all these areas that we kind of would think agencies are going to be in charge of making these determinations. And if agencies did it, um, we would know that they would go through all these uh, complex procedural requirements. Mm -hmm. Can it really be true that just because the president is the one doing it, that the president has only the requirement to consult people within the executive branch? We would definitely not think that's enough for an agency to do that. So is the president different? And where I come out is just to say, yes, I think the president is different. The president is elected, of course. Um, But the president is also, unlike an agency, the president is not an expert in really anything. 
And so part of what why we defer and we let agencies do what they're doing is because we think they're experts. Um, what we've been worried about in administrative law is their lack of accountability, their lack of democratic legitimacy. The president is kind of the opposite. The president has democratic legitimacy, but he has no expertise or very little. And so how do you kind of make sense of that? And so I'm not exactly sure, but I think that in a lot of areas, particularly where um, what the president is doing is actually not something that's very politically salient, it's not going to be something that changes whether or not they're elected, which I think is most things the president does, then the idea that the only check we have on that is that the president is elected, you know, once or twice, and the president um, has consulted people in the executive branch before making the decision, that's not very robust. If we take seriously the, the problems we have with agencies exercising power, um, who have to go through way more procedures, then I don't think um, it follows that uh, the president can do what they are doing just by asking people within the executive branch. So I don't think it's normatively sufficient, at least in some areas. Which areas is it sufficient? Which isn't it? That I am not really sure of yet. What I want to do um, is kind of learn more about exactly where the president is given power and why. So we don't really have a good theory, at least on the statutory front, for why Congress delegates power to the president by name mm -hmm. rather than to agency officials. And I think that might get us some other way to understanding when we want more procedures and when we want less. So for some things that are super high salience, where the president is going to be elected or not elected based on it, maybe we need fewer procedures because there's going to be a political check on it. For other things where the president is given power just because uh, he or she is at the top of the executive branch, and the reason we give it to the president is because we think the president um, is going to consult all the people within the executive branch, they have the best perspective, um, then I think it would make sense. Probably we do want more uh, procedures in that context, given that the delegation is not premised on the fact that the president is going to win or lose an election on it, but it's, it's premised more on kind of consulting experts, uh, making a good decision. And in that context, I think we could require more than just internal deliberation. Um, but this is stuff that I haven't really thought through, and it's kind of what I'm working on in future work, is to try to pursue this normative question by reference to more descriptive work on when the president exactly is given this power and why, because I think that's going to um, be important to figuring out uh, what procedures we think are enough to justify the president's exercise of power. Sounds like another podcast coming up is what I'm hearing. <laughs> um, Professor Roisman, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today. I really appreciate you having me and um, it was nice talking to you. The Experto Crede podcast is the official podcast of the Minnesota Law Review, a student-run law review published by students at the University of Minnesota Law School. For current and past issues, and for more information, visit minnesotalawreview.org. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or the Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.